Hey, let me tell you what we're going to do today. I'm going to give you one more um, lesson on the personality of Northland. Um, simply because just as God made each of us to be unique and irreplaceable, so he makes each church to be unique and irreplaceable. Each of us are, 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 are wired on purpose to accomplish his purposes, his mission. Um, and this, the same is true of our church. So no matter where you are in the world, you're just as much a part of this congregation as the people gathered in this uh, particular room. And, and so we want you to know kind of the background, these, these stories that bind us together, kind of this larger family we have and what the characteristics are. And one characteristic is a great sense of doing something new, doing something that's not done on a usual basis. Um, 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 let, me ask you, let me ask it like this. Is your faith an addition to your life or an adventure in your life? Is it an addition to your life or an adventure in your life? See, I think that as long as we count faith as simply an addition, a, a, something I need, but it adds to the blessings I already have, and, 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 and I certainly would like to live forever, heaven's a plus, you know, and so is having a sense of security and sense of God's love as I walk along. That adds a great deal to my life. So I'm going to accept that in my life. That stunts not only your concept of faith, but God's power in your life. See, I don't think faith is something you have. I think faith is something that has you. I, think, I don't think faith is something you can guide or control. I think faith is something that guides or controls you or someone who guides and controls you. And if you count your faith as a commodity, if you count your faith as a benefit in your life, you know how a lot of people choose churches. I go there because I'm comfortable there. I go there because I get a lot out of it. I go there because it feeds me. I go there because it suits me. I go there because it has programs that are good for my family. I go there because when I go out, I always feel better than when I walked in. None of those are bad things. None of those are bad things. But they lead you to a smaller life than God ever had intended for you. You know, there was a rich young ruler once that came up to Jesus and he had a question for Jesus because he, he was used to accumulating things in his life. He was used to having things in his life. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, this is what he says. And someone came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may, look at this word, obtain eternal life? In other words, I want to possess what you can give me. And so therefore, I'm willing to do the religious thing. I'm, I'm willing to act out good deeds. And, and I want to know what good deeds I have to have in order to buy this benefit in my life. Simon the Magician in, 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 in Acts chapter, chapter 8 did the same thing. When they saw him work the power of God, he said, oh, what, what can I pay you to get that power? I want that power. 
See, Jesus went on to say to him, well, I mean, you do the regular stuff. He said, oh, I've done all the regular stuff. And then Jesus looked at him and said, okay, I'll tell you what to do. I can tell you're, you're rich and that means a lot to you, so go give that up. See, many times you have to give up what you thought was important to get what's really important. That's what love is. Love isn't an addition. Love costs, but it's worth whatever sacrifice you spend because your life is different. You're different. And if we spend our life just accumulating theology, no matter how accurate. If we spend our life just doing the same cycle of religious practices, no matter how good, we will find ourselves someday not set free by them, but weighed down by them. I heard a story a long time ago about a kid who ran everywhere he went. You ever seen a kid who just never walked? I mean, just ran everywhere, just ran everywhere. And this kid was really fast. They called him Fast Eddie. And Fast Eddie just ran everywhere. I mean, just. Well, one, one day, it was going into wintertime. He, in, he lived in the Midwest, and somebody gave him a coat. And it was a wonderful coat because it had so many pockets. Pockets are fascinating. When, when I was growing up, the Army Surplus Store sold um, um, Air Force uh, army uh, uh, jackets that had pockets, pockets and sleeves, pockets. And, I mean, it had so many pockets. It was just fascinating, just great for a kid to own. This one was a trench coat. And it was just, had pocket after pocket, you know? And so Fast Eddie, when he ran, the thing was out behind him and you could just see it flowing behind and it was awesome. But nature abhors a vacuum and, and Fast Eddie had pockets now and he started seeing stuff that he'd kind of like to have. And so he'd pick up a shiny rock because now he had a pocket to put it in. And then he'd go, be going down the street and he'd see some other treasure. You know how boys are. I might need that later. He saw, he saw an old broken, uh, it was fairly big, old broken radio. And he thought, he thought well, maybe I, maybe I could fix it or maybe I could take it apart and just see how, see how it works. And so he just stuck that thing because he had big pockets in the coat, not just little pockets, big pockets. And then he thought one day as he was going out with his, his coat, he said, you know, if I took my lunch with me, I wouldn't have to come back for lunch. I could just stay out all day. So I put some milk in there and he put a sandwich in there, put potato chips in there. And then he went place to place, place. every place he went, in the next few weeks, he found something to keep, something he might need later on. But there was a consequence to this. Fast Eddie wasn't fast anymore because he had this big old heavy jacket that had so many possessions. Finally, when he got every pocket in that coat filled, he could hardly move. As a matter of fact, they didn't call him Fast any, Eddie anymore. His new name was Pockets. I tell that story because that's like pretty much everybody I know. 
you start out and you're free and you're, you're wanting to follow God with all your life and, and, and you're just willing to do anything. And, but then you start taking on stuff. It's valuable stuff. But everything you take on has a requirement. It takes some time and it has some weight and it's valuable stuff. And, and same thing for religious things. They're, they're good things. But it has time and it has weight. And, and pretty soon, you're really not free for a new adventure because you've got so much here, you can't take on anything else. And so we become the religious version of pockets. But it was not always so my brothers and sisters. We were called to an adventure. We were called with the word go. I want to start you off with Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. This was the first word given for our community to our father Abraham, the founder of our faith. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go. Now watch this, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. In other words, from every bit of security you have to a land, look at these words, which I will show you. You don't know where you're going right now. I do. I'll let you know when you get there but you won't know until you get there. You'll never know what your life could have been until you get there. Go. You understand, don't you, that we will never know the fullness of the grace of God until we can't depend upon that which gave us security our whole life. Until that's behind us, until we either leave it or it's taken away. You know, don't you, you will never know how dependable God is until he is all you have to depend upon. That's it. That's how it is. Jesus picked up these words. In Matthew chapter 28, it says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. See, there was a time in this church when God said to us, you can become a mega church. I won't be mad at you. You can offer all these programs that smaller churches can't, can't offer. I won't be mad at you. And if that's all you want to be, I, I won't be mad at you. But let me tell you what that produces. It produces consumer Christians that come for what they can get out of church instead of what they can become for God. It produces people who come in for a menu so that they can get what they need and they can continue to concentrate only on themselves. And, and you can go there, but that's not the vision I had for the original church. My church was distributed and it operated as a network all over the place, you know? So there's a reason we became the church distributed. 
There's a reason that right this weekend we will worship concurrently with parts of our congregation in 340 cities around this world. There's a reason why we're worshiping in 24 countries concurrently right now. It's because that was the original church. That's what God had in mind. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It says in Acts chapter eight, or chapter one, verse eight, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What's the power for? You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the world. And this isn't just geographically going, this is culturally, culturally. In other words, I want you to make relationships with people who are not like you. I want you to be uncomfortable because I'm not here for your comfort. You're here for my mission. That's why I called you. I'm not here to reassure you you're okay like you are, even though I love you just like you are. I'm here to accomplish in your life what I saw when I knit you together in your mother's womb. Let's get that straight. And so, in Acts, when he calls Paul to be the missionary to the Gentiles, by the way, who are the Gentiles? Gentiles are anybody that are not the in people. They're anybody who's not Jewish. Jewish are the chosen people. Those are the chosen people of God. Were they chosen just to be the chosen people? No, they were chosen to be missionaries. That all the families of the earth might be blessed. And so he calls Paul because Israel kind of got stunted with the whole Jewish thing. And they kind of built a culture that was kind of self-contained. But there were Jews who say, no, I want to continue with our original vision. And Paul was one of those Jews. And it says, for the Lord has commanded, this is Acts chapter 13, verse 47. He's explaining it to some Gentiles right now. The Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles. That's what we just saw, isn't it? A light for the Gentiles that you might bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard of this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as many as had been appointed to eternal life. As many as had been appointed to eternal life. So, let me give this to you in two scripture verses. First of all, I want you to know that God will put you in a new place. And God will take away that which has made you secure. We don't always get there by ourselves. God will intervene. Some of you are in that right now. You say, boy, I never expected to be here this, right here in my life. Never expected. I never expected to hear the news I got. I never expected to have the challenges I have. I never expected that I would be here. And to you, it's a tremendously intimidating thing. In Isaiah, there's a, there's, a, there's a chapter in Isaiah, a verse in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 and 19. This is what it says. Forget the former things and do not dwell on the past. See, I don't know how many of you are doing this right now, but I, I, I would almost wager a majority of you are because of natural human inclination, either to try to get what you had in the past or to fix what went wrong in the past. It is a total waste of time. 
You can't get what you had in the past. God doesn't have for you what you had in the past. He has for you what you have in the future. That's what you need to discover. You can't fix what you did wrong in the past. Stop that. You can, you can make it into something more wonderful by going into the future, by recognizing he's doing a new thing. See, I'm doing a new thing, it says. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I know this looks intimidating to you, but I've got this. There are some of you who for this week, this election has been the most unnerving thing you've ever, this election season been the most unnerving thing you've ever gone through. I mean, you just think, oh my goodness. And there's a surprise for most of you result. Now, some of you are doing your happy dance and some of you are scared to death. And you're thinking, what in the world is gonna happen now? Could I tell you something? No one knows. President-elect Trump doesn't know. If you're having trouble dealing with, because this has been traumatic for many of you, you're grieving, there's a sense of loss, there's a sense of, 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 of fright. We want you to know we take you seriously here. Um, um, Nathan Clark, who is our uh, minister, he's a distributed elder. You, you, you know this guy because he's a big full beard and he always wears red pants. He's one of the most brilliant guys I know. Um, and and, and, and he's, he will be in the hub afterwards. If you are having trouble dealing with the election results, then talk with him. You know, debrief with him. There's some of you who, who are dancing your way out the door. There's some of you we got to coax back from the ledge. Because here's the truth that I told you last week. It doesn't matter who gets elected. The same God that was God on Tuesday morning is the same God as God on Wednesday morning. That's God. And we have the same call. No matter how this election turned out, we've got exactly the same call. The call is you don't depend on a political system to fix your life. You don't depend on, on, on any government to make this world better. That's up to you. That's up to me. We've got that call. See, you've got a new thing that's happened in you. Don't you perceive this is from God? This is a new territory. It's what you make out of it. And you've got a power, watch this, you've got a power. No, let me say, you're attached to a power. See, a lot of people say, I want the power. You will never feel like you have enough power to deal with in your life what you, what you need to deal with. Do you know why? Because you haven't got enough power in your life <laughs> to deal with what you have to deal with. You haven't got the power. He's got the power. He's got the power. When he says, I will give you power, that comes out of the closeness to God. Let me tell you a story. I haven't told this in a couple of decades, one of my favorite stories. Tater Wilson. Some of you remember this story. Tater Wilson was this guy. Think of Steve Urkel. See, yeah, you know, he's got big glasses. Now you're going to have to suspend. This is a joke. You're going to suspend belief just for a little bit. But he, big glasses and got, you know, this one and hiked up britches and, and he's got a little moped and he's going down the street, you know, and he stops at a stoplight. 
Well, up beside him comes this Ferrari. I mean this, this red package of power. You know, Tater looks over and he's mesmerized. It's the finest car he has ever seen in his life. Well, the driver looks out, he sees Tater's eyes. And so he, he says, he, he thinks, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll talk to him. So, he, but you know, the window comes down. Tater says, mister, this is the finest car I've ever seen in my life. He said, how fast will this car go? And he said, oh, I don't know, 180, maybe 200 miles an hour. <gasps> Tater says, oh my goodness. And he leans in, he says, if you ever wanna get rid of this car, oh, Tater will take it. <laughs> Just at that moment, that stoplight turns to green. And the guy thinks, I'm gonna show him what this car can do. So he pops that clutch and he, that car just takes off. And in a very few seconds, he's at 80 going on 90. And he looks in his rear view mirror, expecting to see Tater sitting there with his eyes wide open. Well, he's sitting there all right, but he's sitting on his moped following the Ferrari. Not just following, gaining on the Ferrari. And he, he can't believe his eyes. He's looking into, and Tater shoots past the Ferrari, 100 miles an hour, shoots past the Ferrari, turns around, comes back, shoots past it again. He looks in his rear view mirror, here comes Tater again, bangs into the back of the car. The guy pulls over, he goes back, he says, Tater, Tater, I'm so sorry. Is there anything I can do? Tater says, yeah, you, you wanna unhook my suspenders from your rear view mirror? We don't have the power, we're hooked to the power. You understand this? This is how it works. This is how, you lean into God, you got all the power you need. And that's quite the point, isn't it? See, we're here because God still wants us to make a difference we haven't made yet. That's why we're here. And if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much room. How did we get from the place where we were being told to go to the place where we're worried about where we're gonna stay. And we want everybody to come to where we are. How did we get to that place? How did we, how did we get from becoming fishers of men to keepers of the aquarium? to where we had all the fish and we just were worried that we don't want to lose any of the fish. You get around pastors these days, they're all worried they're gonna lose their people. Not realizing those were never their people. Those people belong to God. And we shouldn't be worried about not losing anybody. It's not about losing, it's about sending people. How did we get from the people who God says, go from your father's house to the people who complain about property taxes. How did, we get, how did we get there? How did we get from the people who were so expressive of their faith 
that they were identified as Christians, they were stood in the arena as Christians, and they were devoured by lions before they would deny their faith in Jesus Christ and orphan their children because of their public following Christ. How did we get from those kind of people to the kind of people that say, I can't get my children to come to church? Do you know, it's better to orphan your children by demonstrating your faith than orphan your children from your faith because you never demonstrated it. Do you understand what God's calling from us? There was a poem during World War II, and a couple of lines of it went like this. Some men die of shrapnel. Some go down in flames. But most men perish inch by inch in playing little games. I think that in a consumer society, our biggest fear is failure. That should never be our biggest fear. Our biggest fear, as has been said, should be that we will succeed at something that really doesn't matter. Something that really doesn't make a difference. You were made for bigger lives than this. And the reason that the only thing that the, the only reason that your life is consumed with your problems is because you haven't cited anything bigger than your problems. And you're not dealing with anything bigger than your problems. God calls us to something deeper, to something better, to something more powerful. And he calls us not just as individuals. He calls us as a body. That's the point of this church. God has made us who we are because he wants us to have not just a personal impact, a collective impact. And so when we deal with these, with these issues, because we keep bringing them, because we're already making a difference, and people understand that, some of them will be personal. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a passage in Matthew chapter 13. It talks about a scribe. Not, not, not everything that is old is, is, is weight. It's, it's, some of it is old, is valuable. You keep that. But then you bring out some, what's new. Jesus said, Matthew 13, 52, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. When we say to you, have you ever considered adopting? Some of you have, but you go, I, I don't know. I, I would need a sign from God. You mean a sign like your church says, would you consider this? You, you might want to go back and talk to folks. But there are also overwhelming, overwhelming problems that we can't deal with as individuals, but we can make a huge difference as a community, because we have formed into new wineskins. There's a new form of the church. The old form of the church just hides in the room. The new form of the church, no room can contain. Jesus said, 
in Matthew chapter 9, verse 17. You don't put new wine into old wineskins that try to hold it in, that are brittle, that aren't elastic, because those will burst and the wines pour out. You know why people quit church? Because it's not worth the effort anymore. There's nothing big enough in there to really challenge them and hold them anymore. But you give people something that we can do together that not many communities in the U.S. are doing. Let me give you an example, and I'll tell you why these two tables are out here. We have just recently in this community recognized that we have been the number one city in this nation for homelessness. The number one city in this nation for homelessness. Now, some of us understand why. It's nice weather down here. And if you're going to be homeless, you might as well be homeless in nice weather. And there's some pickup work and there are some places that you can stay for a while. But we began to take that seriously as a community. I mean, the government started taking it seriously. The mayors and the, and the commissioners, the, the large corporations began to take it seriously. The Disney's and the J.P. Morgan's and the Florida hospitals and the nonprofits began to take it seriously. And they wanted the faith community to take it seriously as well. They wanted the moral voice of the faith community. They wanted us to say, it's not right that people are homeless in our community. And I know what you think of when you think of homeless. You think of this guy standing in a sign on an intersection and, and, and you think, well, man, he looks healthier than I am, you know? That's not the full face of homelessness. Let me show you a couple of other faces of homelessness in our community. This is one of them. Let me show you a family that's living in a car. This is one of them. Let me show you another face. This is one of them. That's not right. So they want the faith community to say it's not right, but I want the faith community to do more than say it's not right. I want the faith community to be the personal side of getting people into homes and sustaining them in homes. See, government can't do that. Government just has money and that's valuable. Large corporations can't do that. They just have money and that's valuable. And even specialty organizations can't do that because they provide specialty services, but they don't walk along with people. You know who can walk along with people? We can. And I didn't quite know how to do this until God in his sovereignty put at the head of the Central Florida Commission on Homelessness, a person of faith, as the new chairman. We had another chairman all picked out, a judge, but because of circumstances, he withdrew his name. And so they turned to a person of faith to be the new chairman. It was God's way of saying, I want the faith community to be at the center of this thing. By the way, you know who the new chairman is? That'd be me. And I am completely over my head 
which shows I'm in exactly the right place. And I wanna call you into creating a system where every faith community in this Central Florida region can be a vital personal part of the solution to homelessness. We can do this thing. We have already made huge strides with veterans homelessness. We've got practically every veteran housed now. The same thing with chronic homelessness, the people who aren't capable, who need a higher degree of clinical help. We got all, but when it comes to family homelessness, oh my goodness. If this is something that you would like to act on. That's what those tables are for out there. And you can sign up online and we'll follow up with you because we need three things. First of all, we need to catalog the resources that God has already put in all of our faith communities. We need a system where if a, a little church of 40 says, I got a person here that needs a, a, you know, a, a, you know, a bedroom suit, but we don't have one. He can go on this system and say, well, there's a church across town. We can get it, we can get it right here. So we need people to catalog. We need administrative people who data, data entry people. We need people who will say, you know, I'd, I would love just to walk along with a, with a family who's just been housed and just be their friend. Because you know what poverty does? It isolates you. You burn through every relationship you have when you're poor because they know you're gonna go and ask for stuff and when you start coming, they dive in the doorway. And so you're either isolated from them or you're isolated by yourself because you're so ashamed, you self-isolate. And the greatest need that most of these families have is not an extra meal, it's a friend who happens to know something about resourcing them in the way that will get them back on their feet and not keep them in this horrible cycle of dependence. And if you'd like to be one of those people, we can train you. Or if you'd like to train some other churches, we can train you to train them. The point is that if God would have you help, what a difference you could make. And it's a difference that only the faith community can make. Watch this. In cooperation with other realms of our culture who will see your witness of your faith and they will begin to think about God. Can I tell you this? I haven't told any other person this. <laughs> It'll only take one minute. I was talking to one of the top, my, my, my last month, month and a half or two months have been to, to go to have a conversation with every top leader in this region in every capacity. And I was talking to one of the top leaders, I won't, I won't name the name, the top government officials um, of, a, of a government agency uh, that touches tens of thousands of lives in this area. And so I'm meeting all their top people and we're, we're saying, I think the faith community can do this and so on and so forth. And, 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 and the people that, that I, I couldn't call, just call up as a pastor, I can call up as the, as the new chairman. And so, so I said, well, I, I got another point I got to leave in the, in the, in the top guy said, let me walk you out to the, to the elevators. And so we're walking out the elevators. He puts his arm around me. He whispers to me. I couldn't say this in there, but you know what these people need? They need Jesus. 
Let me pray. God, take these words and apply them to our minds that we might not grow shallow. And apply them to our hearts that we might not grow cold. And apply them to our feet that we might be doers of the word and not hearers only. Make us into the people that you had in mind when you knit us together in our mother's womb and when you knit us into this congregation that covers the world. Guide us and we will follow. Amen.